If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. Good morning. My name is Paul, and I am here as one of the pastoral interns at Cornerstone, and I have the joy and privilege of bringing you guys God's Word today. Uh, We're currently in a sermon series called Five on Five, Genesis to Deuteronomy, where we're looking at five lessons in each of the five books of the Bible. Last week, we looked at how God delivered Lot, and this week, we will look at one of the most popular stories in the Bible of how God tested Abraham through the call to sacrifice Isaac. If you are able, please stand with me as your act of worship for the reading and receiving of God's word. Starting from verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, 
because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may now be seated. Please join with me in prayer so that we may ask the Lord to bless the preaching of the word. Dear good and gracious Father, uh, we humbly come before you in awe and reverence, recognize the depth of your holiness as we see the depth of our own sinfulness. We thank you, Lord, for the precious gift of your only son. And we pray as the preaching of the word goes forth that we may behold his glory and be forever conformed by his image. I pray, Lord, that your congregation be edified and that you would empower my preaching so that your name would be exalted above all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I came to seminary, I did my undergrad in biblical and theological studies. So I've been at this for a while. I, re I realized that it's already been eight years since I've been continually just studying theology. But throughout my studies, there was this interesting but consistent pattern in how God mysteriously worked in my life each and every semester. Toward the end of the semester, where students are anxious and turning in their term papers and completing their final exams, there would be something in my life that would absolutely go haywire that completely came out of nowhere. Whether it was dealing with a friend on the brink of suicide or a room, roommate going through a manic episode, or finding out that my ministry partner was living a duplicitous life, or facing an unexpected death of a family member. Every semester had its own unique challenges, which tested the quality of my faith by undergoing these trials. What I came to quickly recognize is that the true theology exam is not one that was administered by the school, but it was ultimately given by God himself. What I truly know about this God cannot be assessed by a blue book or multiple choice exam, but by applying God's truth and trusting in his sovereignty when life throws you curveballs our true biblical convictions, what we think we know of God, truly become solidified and confirmed when the rubber meets the road. This pattern of God's testing his people is not unique in the way God has worked throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. As a matter of fact, this very pattern is what saints universally experience and continue to experience from the Old Testament to this present day. As we will look back at Genesis chapter 22 this morning, 
we look at one of the most well-known stories of God testing Abraham in the climax of his journey with God. As we recall, God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to go and depart from his past and leave behind his home, his family, his father's house in order to receive the rich blessings of God's promises. We see that Abraham obeyed. And as we reach finally at the other bookend of Abraham's concluding journey, Abraham is met with a similar but far greater command to go and offer up the entirety of his future that he banked on, his only beloved son. If you look with me in verses one through two, it states, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The phrase after these things is a transition to remind the reader of all the obstacles Abraham had to face that led to Isaac's miraculous birth from the barrenness of Sarah to the birth of Ishmael from Hagar. What was also ironic is that if Isaac dies, it would appear to invalidate all of God's promises to Abraham. The narrator of the story cues in his reader that God is testing Abraham. But we must recognize that Abraham himself had no clue what was going on. The fact that Moses lets his reader know beforehand that God was testing Abraham indicates that God was not really requiring Abraham to sacrifice his child like pagan gods in the surrounding ancient Near Eastern culture. What God specifically calls Abraham to do is offer up his son. But the enormity and extreme request of God is seen in the description, your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, which is repeated three key times in this narrative. And just the word son alone is repeated 10 times in this narrative to show the severity of this test, which demands Abraham to consecrate everything, his whole heart. What is curious is the fact that Abraham does not immediately verbally respond back to God. But the narrative moves on in Abraham's complete silence, which places an emphasis on his raw human experience of living with the tough questions and raw emotions that is going on internally. A commentator goes so far to call this the most poignant and eloquent silence of all literature. Though Abraham remains silent, he nevertheless responds to God by simply obeying this extreme command without any retaliation 
by rising up early next morning to take his son to Mount Moriah. Abraham's level of dedication is truly amazing to me because waking up early in the morning is a difficult task enough for me. But Abraham does so in order to accomplish what he is dreading to do. I don't know about you, but the last thing I want to do when I'm enduring hardship is to wake up early in the morning to endure it. But that's exactly what Abraham does here. We see here how Abraham's actions speak louder than words. Abraham's faith is demonstrated in his doing. Though the road up the mountain is turbulent, his act of obedience expresses the degree of faith he has in the Lord. Instead of a verbal response, we are given excessive details of Abraham's preparing for the journey in the very next day. In verse three, as he rises early in the morning, he's saddling his donkey. He's taking two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and cutting wood to perform the burnt offering while simultaneously dying inside and dragging his feet. From verse four, uh, we can see that the journey took a duration of three days to get to this destination. It wasn't a one-day journey or a three-hour car ride, but these three days must have truly felt like an eternity as time might have felt like it passed by so slowly, especially in Abraham's midst of suffering. In verse 5, Abraham finally breaks this silence by telling his young men to stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. The statement clearly indicates that Abraham has faith that God will somehow provide a way for Isaac to survive this ordeal, which shows a great level of confidence that Abraham has in God's gracious character, this notion that he is able to go through this difficult circumstances in his life. But as we do so, it might warrant us to doubt God. But even when we trek through the murky waters, the closer you walk with the Lord, the greater familiarity that you have with his dealings. You can always be confident in the way that God deals with his beloved children and his providential care is gracious and loving, even in the most strangest circumstances. Abraham does not give up midway through his journey but he continues to follow through with a sacrifice by taking the wood, fire, and the knife and lays it on his son as they go alone together up the mountain. The tension rises during the climb up when Abraham, when, when Isaac, his son, breaks the silence with his father and asks Abram this heart-wrenching question in verse 7. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
As Isaac inquires about the missing lamb, Abraham assures himself and his son in verse 8 that God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham responds by faith in the gospel promise that the Lord will somehow provide a way for his son to live. The conflict reaches its climax in verse 9, when Abraham and Isaac reaches their final destination, and Abraham builds an altar, puts wood on it, binds Isaac, puts him on the altar, reaches for the knife, and is ready to slaughter his son like an animal. Verse 10 states, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. At the pinnacle of chaos, the angel of the Lord, namely the pre-incarnate Christ, intervenes and cries out in verse 11 through 12, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The phrase, for I know that you fear God, shows that the purpose of this test was to examine and confirm whether Abraham truly feared the Lord or not. The fear of the Lord that is emphasized here is a deep reverence that leads to obedience, which is what Abraham clearly demonstrated in his acts of faith up to this point. The trust and hope that God will provide is not only the turning point, but it lies at, at the heart of this story as God does not, as God does indeed come, as God does indeed come through to, pro, to provide a lamb caught in the thicket to be sacrificed in substitution to his son. Verse 13 through 14 states, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The conflict is fully resolved when Abraham takes the ram to offer it up as a burnt offering and calls the name of Mount Moriah the Lord will provide, since the Lord graciously provided a sacrifice so that Isaac might live. As a result of Abraham's obedience and willingness to consecrate his son, the angel of the Lord calls upon Abraham a second time to repeat and expand the covenant blessings in verses 15 through 18. The fulfillment of what God promised was conditional on Abraham's obedience. Because Abraham passed this test of submission to the Lord, he received a guarantee and confirmation that God will bring his promises to completion. The first part of the blessing that we see here in verse 17 expands on the promise to multiply Abraham's offspring as much as there are stars in the heaven and as much as there, are, there is sand on the shore, which is an unquantifiable number. The last part in verse 18 says that, says that through one offspring, all the nations will be blessed 
and that his offspring will possess the gates of his enemies, which means that Abraham's dynasty will rule over the enemy nations as evidence in Exodus and Israel's victory over Pharaoh, which ultimately culminates in Christ's victory over Satan. When looking at Abraham, we have to recognize that there is something unique to which we as new covenant believers cannot replicate because we're simply not Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch of our faith and was uniquely placed in redemptive history to bring about a particular result that cannot be replicated by me and you. It's also important to distinguish that Abraham's pattern of faith and testing is not entirely unique to us, which means that we can still learn from his example. It's also equally important to recognize that Abraham's act of faith does not espouse some type of works-based moralism. It might seem this way, Because if we look back in verse 12, when the angel of the Lord intervenes the first time, it seems as though it is because of Abraham's has passed God's testing. And he says, and for now I know that you fear God. In the second declaration of the angel of the Lord in verse 16, it states that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, you receive these covenant blessings. God confirms his blessings and verse 18, after the reaffirmation and expansion of the covenant, he again repeats this by saying, it is because you have obeyed my voice that you receive these blessings. We might be scratching our head, but I think the best way to understand this is that Abraham here functions as an imperfect type of Christ who functions as a man of obedience to secure for his people God's blessing as the Abrahamic covenant is tested and reconfirmed by meeting these conditions. Our obedience as new covenant believers in God's testing does not secure and ratify the Abrahamic covenant because Abraham already did so here in Genesis 22. This does not mean that there is nothing we can learn from Abraham's demonstration of faith in light of God's testing. As Paul famously called the Corinthian believers to imitate Christ by imitating him, we can safely say that we can also learn to imitate Christ by the example set by our forefathers of our faith in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the Hebrews author in the New Testament places this specific story of Abraham in the hall of faith by stating that Abraham believed as he underwent the test that God will somehow restore Isaac by resurrecting him from the dead. Echoes of Abraham's trust that God will provide is repeated throughout the story and should be repeated in our lives as well, except we can trust that God has already provided us every spiritual blessing in his only begotten son. Abraham's example of being tested has implications for the Christian life in the sense that God to test our faith in order to confirm our election. 
In light of the resurgence of Calvinistic doctrine through the young, restless, and reformed movement, the importance of focusing on the unconditional love and grace of God displayed in the gospel has been rightly emphasized and recovered. But such an emphasis can lead to a lack of focus of distinguishing that there is also a conditional aspect and responsibility we have as grace recipients and covenant members to live in obedience and in accordance with the gospel. This call to obedience from the principle expounded in James is faith without works is dead. Although we are not saved by our works, works is a necessary consequence of our faith. It is true that Abraham was initially credited righteous by faith, as clearly stated in the prior passage, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and commented by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. But that same faith is made evident and is completed by obedience as James chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, comments on our passage, Genesis chapter 22, and states, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled when Abraham's uh, was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous and he was called a friend of God. This justification by works, it's not a Roman Catholic doctrine per se, but James is referring to what James is referring to. He's not speaking of this initial justification that we merit salvation, but he's highlighting the notion that there is this type of sequential conditionality in the dynamics of the gospel, which I will now explain. To clarify, the works should not be viewed as a meritorious condition that we can meet by our own power. For instance, in a merit-based system, if an employee is contractually obligated to work a certain amount of hours each week, that employee must work the specified number of hours in order to attain his salary. The problem with this model, if we inject this into the gospel, is that all of humanity have fallen short of the glory of God and cannot attain eternal life by our own works apart from Christ. On the other hand, the nature of sequential conditionality can be seen in the example when a family drives from Philadelphia to New York. In order to get to New York, the family will have to pass through New Jersey. Passing through New Jersey is a necessary condition, which is a result of the sequence set by Google Maps in order to reach the appropriate destination. When God extends his grace to us, there is a specific sequential ordering to our salvation. An aspect of this particular sequence is seen in James's emphasis that saving faith organically culminates itself in obedience. This means that as Abraham's act of obedience ratified the Abrahamic covenant, our act of faith and obedience renews that we are in the covenant of grace by solidifying our faith 
and confirming our election. Grace-based, gospel-fueled, spirit-empowered obedience is the ordained means to reach the destination God has in store for true believers. This passage also demonstrates to us how God tests us in order to determine our willingness to surrender our whole hearts before the Lord. The significance of God calling Abraham to offer up his son Isaac as a burnt offering at the Mount of Moriah serves as a foundation in which the Jerusalem temple and the sacrificial system is built upon, which Leviticus heavily emphasizes. And you can learn more about this by going to Ben's Sunday school class, which he will gladly love to talk about. Nevertheless, even this notion of the burnt offering that we see present in this passage differed from the other type of offerings as in the burnt offering, the whole animal underwent the burning. Michael Morales states, the burning of the entire animal conveys the sense of utter consecration a life yielded entirely to Yahweh in full submission to his will and in complete obedience to his law. There is then an essential element of absolute surrender and total self-dedication involved in the ascension offerings, in other words, burnt offerings. In other words, what God demanded of Abraham in the offering of his son as a burnt offering was a full submission and consecration before the Lord. What God demands from you is the very same thing, but even more so as new covenant believers. By virtue of being united in Christ, God calls you to consecrate all things before him and live as living sacrifices. Offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God is not a sacrifice for sin, for Christ's sacrifice has already accomplished that. Rather, because Christ is our ultimate sacrifice, we are now enabled to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable in God's sight. Since you are in union with Christ, you are called to live sacrificially by living in full submission to the Lord, by being willing to devote your entire existence to serve God. In short, the gospel does not call you to passivity, but it has a great demand far more than you could ever imagine. The gospel demands your everything just as the gospel demanded Abraham's full heart allegiance. It's also worthwhile to consider the significance of the sequence in which Abraham conducts the burnt offering of the ram first before the confirmation of the covenant oath. The sacrifice of the ram highlights how Abraham's obedience alone is imperfect and insufficient. Even in light of Abraham's great demonstration of faith that we saw in our passage today, it's necessary for a substitutionary sacrifice to die in our place in order for both Abraham and Isaac to live. Thanks be to God that that the ram caught in the thicket points to the final sacrifice of the son of God, the sacrificial lamb who was killed on your behalf so that you too might have eternal life. Isaac also functions as a Christ figure as he repeatedly is identified as the only beloved son 
who's given up by his father as an offering, who carried wood for his own death on a hill as Christ actually did for us on Calvary. Likewise, Abraham's willingness to give up his only son signifies the supreme love that God the Father has for you because he went through to lay down his only begotten son in order that we too might become his sons through the extension of the blessing of the gospel. It's also worthwhile to meditate on the irony and the beauty of how the pre-incarnate Christ who appears as the angel of the Lord to Abraham personally stepped in and stopped Abraham from offering his only son in order that he might one day offer up his own life in substitution. In light of this panorama of rich Christological connections, we see a multifaceted depiction of how the gospel that was once promised to Abraham comes to fruition through the person and work of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. In light of this beautiful gospel that we received by having been engrafted into Abraham's line by faith, may we seek to live a life worthy of the gospel. When the testing of the Lord comes into our lives, may we like Abraham, but more importantly, Christ, be ready to walk in obedience, trusting in the sovereignty of God so that our faith might grow in stature and wisdom. Please join with me in prayer.